You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Look who just darkened the door, Tim Craighead. He is a director of research for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's based in London. Uh, he's been with Bloomberg Intelligence for 13 years uh, since the absolute beginning of Bloomberg Intelligence. Prior to that, he was a Goldman Sachs for like 20 years, a managing director doing God knows what over there. Um, but he's been picking stocks for a long time. He's seen uh, some good names, some bad names. Tim is uh, joins us here on a Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Tim, Europe. We think of the U.S. market, oh my goodness, it's S&P 500 is down 20% last year. It was just a brutal year. Talk to us about European stocks last year and kind of what the outlook is for this year. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Um, Matt, you look great. Thank you. <laughs> Love the beard. Thank um, you. Um, you're the, one sorry. of the few. <laughs> <laughs> so the the it, Europe certainly was under pressure last year, but it wasn't under nearly the pressure that the S&P 500 was. Um, and obviously, NASDAQ was even worse. Um, so Europe outperformed. Interestingly, from the bottom of last October, where there was a trading low in Europe, it's like over here, uh, European markets are up 16%. Okay. Um, the FTSE, as the biggest market within, the, the, within Europe, is up 13 14%. So there's, there's been a nice move there. And... You know, there's been this battle of valuation versus earnings. Um, last year, valuation won. Um, earnings stayed really high, surprisingly so. Um, and valuation just got crushed with rising interest rates. Since October, we've actually seen earnings roll over. We've had 5% negative revision in 2023 earnings estimates for the stock 600, but the market's risen because valuation is now looking out towards a 2024 recovery. And valuations also in Europe are much lower than valuations here, right? On the S&P 500, the other day I was looking at, it was uh, almost 19% again. 19 times, right? 19 times earnings, yeah. excuse me. And um, Europe was more like 12. Yeah, it's 12, 12 and a half times forward wow. um, currently for the stock 600. The FTSE's at 10.4. Now the issue for, is you you've have explained to me over the years, and as I read your research from you and your team, is Europe, the UK, have a much lower weighting in technology yeah. versus the US markets. And that accounts for the valuation differential yeah. and yeah. the performance. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we, we put out a note 
last week. Um, two things, I think, of note relative to, to this. Um, one was on valuation specifically and, it, and oriented towards the FTSE, given that it trades at such a low multiple. And, you know, the comment was essentially, you can find it on the terminal, you know, it's, it's cheap for a reason. And, yep. it, you know, you've got big components of energy and materials and banks which trade at lower multiples, especially with the energy and materials at essentially peak earnings and so therefore trough multiples. Um, and it's got zero tech, well, 1% tech. Um, so it's just a dramatically mm -hmm. different proposition. And that whole idea that we've talked about in terms of value investing versus growth investing, Europe broadly, the FTSE specifically, is more value-oriented than, say, the U.S., and it plays into an environment where interest rates and inflation, even if they're coming off peak, are still at relatively elevated levels. Now, I tend to think of the U.S. as a tech-heavy and Europe as oil-heavy. Mm. And I guess if you're heavy in any one uh, sector, that would lead to more volatility, right? Less diversity. Um, but I don't think Europe is really as, it's really the FTSE that's oil heavy, right? Because yep. they have a Royal Dutch Shell, British Petroleum, yep. um, and it's the rest of Europe just has like Total. Well, it's Total and, and, and Repsol and, and ENI, but it's 5% it's of the market for the stock 600, even including the, the UK, um, uh, where the FTSE is about 10. So it, it's definitely heavier there. I would say that Europe is still commodity heavy relative to uh, relative the to the U.S. But there, it, it's part metals and mining, which again is heavy in the U.K., but in Europe, broadly, the continent, it's chemicals. And yeah, that's one of those things where right now that's a question as to whether that's pressure point or an opportunity because, you know, our energy price is high or low, which is an input cost. You know? By the way, U.S. is, I mean, how much of the S uh, of the S and P is tech? It's like fifteen percent, yeah. right? Well, it, it, it's more than that. And if you include e-commerce as tech, and if you include the internet, which is in media, and you take that whole conglomeration, it's still, yeah, you know, call it thirty percent of the market. All right, Huge. for for all our listeners, I'll point out just as an aside that uh, Tim and Matt obviously go to the same barber, and we'll, <laughs> and we'll just leave it at that. Um, so, Tim, as we look ahead to 2023, what are your There's no here? end, you know, to the <laughs> ribbing bald men get? We're people, too, Paul. We're people, too. Exactly. Tim, what, what are our themes for 2023 here as, as we look to the UK and Europe? Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, a, a big issue for, for the, the region is going to be, no, no surprise, what happens to energy, where it was a much bigger shock than it was over here. Um, and thank God we've had a warm winter so far. Yep. It, it's not good for skiing in the Alps. Oh boy, I've seen that um, a lot. <laughs> what, there's no snow right now? No snow. <laughs> like oh, that's horrible. Didn't yeah. you just go skiing? There was snow no, in Colorado. In, in, well, in, the, in, in the U.S., we're just deluged. California yeah. cannot dig out from yeah. all the snow. Although I was in Vermont for New Year's, and that wasn't so hot. Well, it's ne it's right. never hot. It's it, never it was so hot. But nonetheless, yeah. so I think energy rolling over is a huge big deal from the standpoint of reducing some of that um, uh, threat um, that could have really put uh, a spanner in the work, so to speak, uh, for the economy. And, you know, that's lifting, you know, the opportunity as we can look towards 2024, unless something stupid happens, 
between Russia and the well, Ukraine. Well, China Europe. reopening, like when I think of that's some of the European massive. companies, that's I a, that's think a, of yeah. Siemens and yeah. some of these big German well, manufacturers. I was going to say, I was, that, that's a second one. That is yep. a, it, it, I think it is more leverage to Europe because of its industrial consumer discretionary um, commodity base that feeds into a China reopening. Uh, well, think, and the, the Europeans have just gotten along with... Merkel will hold a call with Xi Jinping, and they're nice to each other. It's yeah. different than the Trump-China relationship. Now, the Biden-China relationship has been very adversary yeah. uh, um, and adversarial. I think yeah. that's, yeah. that's that's where you go. Thank you. Uh, and the Europeans have been courting China. Yeah. You know, um, we have been angry at them for that, yeah. but now they're going to reap the benefits of both their relationships with China and global warning. Both of those things turn out to be good yeah. well, for democracy. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> I do think that it, we've had lots of discussions about this, that if push came to shove and you had two spheres of influence, it, Germany will leg in with Europe and will leg in to the U.S. sphere as opposed to the China sphere, but there's definitely plain both sides where possible. I think another big theme is just, you know, talking about climate change and whatever else, just what happens on the whole sort of infrastructure green approach. It's a big issue within the energy market, not only because there are pure plays there, but you've got the big energy exposure and what are they doing from the recycling of their capital? They're not, they're not digging new holes in the ground yep. for oil. They're putting it into renewables right. in various ways. And it's a pretty interesting theme. Good stuff uh, coming out of Europe, coming out of the UK. Tim Craighead, he's the Director of Research and Senior European Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's based in London, Queen Victoria Street. And just an awesome, awesome building uh, that we have in Bloomberg in London. But he's here in New York this week. How cool is that? Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Robert Teeter, Head of Investment Policy and Strategy at Silvercrest Asset Managers, joins us here in studio, as does 
Jay Hatfield, CEO at Infrastructure Capital Advisors. So, Jay, we saw the inflation data today. It looks like it's moderating. What does that mean to you? Well, we're far more bullish than um, certainly the Federal Reserve on inflation and some market participants because we really look at CPI-R, which is our own index for inflation, which sounds exotic, but all it really is is just the way CPI was calculated before 1982. So instead of using the BLS's highly lagged shelter component, we use Case-Shiller, and that index, and you can verify this on the terminal, leads the shelter component by 12 months with a 70% correlation. I'd like that chart. <laughs> okay. I'll make the chart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, it. That's interesting. Uh, Bob, what do you think? I mean, um, inflation seems to be, in hindsight, it looks like inflation was transitory. And maybe I'm too early to say that, but just a year later. Well, I think there have been a few different cycles within inflation. Certainly energy's one, shelter's one, the goods component's one, services is another. They're all in their own cycles, uh, all a little bit different in terms of their transitory nature. To me, the key thing is that the past few months, the month-over-month -month figures have been coming down significantly. I think that gives the Fed a little more flexibility. So while they'll continue hiking, it's in smaller amounts, they might then proceed to a pause. And then I think they have a bit more flexibility if the economy weakens to change policy because they're able to point to those metrics that improvements have been coming. And so I think when we see them acknowledge that publicly, that'll be a signal that their mindset is changing. We have started to hear speakers come out. Bostic the other day was like, wait until CPI, maybe I'd be down with 25. Then yesterday, I think Susan Collins came out and said, I'm feeling 25. And today, Harker was like, 25 looks good. So I guess they're trying to tell us, not all voting members, obviously, but uh, that, you know, February 1st could be 25 rather than 50. But they're definitely not going to pivot and cut, right? Because then they would lose credibility all over again. That's right. I think they've earned a lot of credibility. They've, they've clearly indicated that they would prefer to be tougher rather than weaker. They'd rather make the mistake of hiking too much for too long. So I do think the 25 basis point hikes will continue. Although I thought the comments today from Harker acknowledging that the days of 75 are long behind us were also encouraging. I think in the mm -hmm. past there had maybe been some fear that those type of hikes might continue. And I think that's starting to fade into the background. By, by the way, isn't that a better mistake to make, Jay? I mean, I heard someone this morning say the Fed made a mistake, you know, by not raising rates early, and now they're making another mistake by raising rates for too long. But um, making a mistake and allowing inflation into the picture, real inflation, that's a big mistake. Whereas making a mistake that causes a recession, tightening a little too much, it's not a huge mistake. Well, that's a, a great representation of the Fed's view. We don't agree with it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because. <laughs> no, um, Matt, you're wrong. <laughs> Just say it. The Fed, I mean, is a credible entity. But the reason we don't uh, uh, believe in that theory is that the Fed, we think, is too focused on the labor market and expectations. And we don't think that there's a risk of a wage price spiral. We really look at it as a price wage uh, downward spiral. So in other words, goods prices really drive wages. And if you really look in this cycle, wages, real wages are declining. So we don't think it's a problem, but we recognize the Fed does. And that's why we're bullish on the market for the year, but cautious for this first six months because of exactly this debate, where the market really thinks inflation is cooling or negative. Jeremy Siegel says that our index printed negative 0.2%. So you have that camp and then the Fed, and they get to talk every day doing open market operations. So if you're trading the market, that's always a risk factor. So we're thinking first six months uh, volatile, second six months should be more bullish. 
Bob, what, what's your call at your shop? What are you guys thinking about as we head into 23 after just a brutal 2022, no matter where you were? I'd say we're, we're modestly uh, optimistic on the course of the year. The timeline's difficult to predict, I think, because I think you have two influences going on. One, which is earnings, which we think will be perhaps a bit better than, uh, than feared, maybe uh -huh. around flat, a little bit okay. positive. Uh, I think with a lot of dispersion beneath the surface because those same cycles that are going on within inflation are playing out across revenue and cost structures of companies. So a lot of dispersion in earnings. But we think the decline in inflation throughout the year, the change in Fed tone will improve valuation. So I think you'll get a little bit of a lift from improved valuations as we navigate the year. All right. So... Uh the valuation picture, I think, has been really interesting. And in terms of price earnings, uh, it's still we're still valued, I think, too high. It feels like, right? 19 times earnings, if you look at the S&P. Where should we be? And, you know, um, are there better metrics for you than PE? Well, I think there are a lot of different metrics, of course. The one that, that we pay a lot of attention to is looking at PE relative to where rates and inflation are. And that's where I think we might get some of the upside boost on PE. So I agree with you. Point in time today, uh, it seems like stocks are certainly fairly valued and, and, and not cheap. Um, but as we see this turning in inflation and as we see interest rates stabilize and potentially decline over the course of the next year, uh, then I think that gives you room to boost PEs by a bit. Not a lot, but I think there is a little bit of upside there. So we're not looking for massive gains, but a little bit from the earnings side, a little bit from valuation puts you in a pretty decent place. Certainly a lot better than last year. Hey, Jay, I, you know, energy is just ripped in 2022 and in 2021. Did I miss that trade? Am I done? I don't think that energy stocks are going to lead the market this year. We're projecting that oil trades in a pretty tight range, 80 to 100. But I will say that this is a very, very warm winter, as you can tell if you live in New York City hmm. and in Europe as well. And that was really the uh, core of our bull thesis. Now, having said that, China's reopening, so we're sticking to our 80 to 100. But that doesn't really argue for a rip-roaring energy market. So we're looking to more interest-sensitive. We are. Uh, projecting a 3% tenure, which, by the way, does increase the fair multiple. A 10 at a 3% uh, yield on the Treasury, that implies an 18.5 fair multiple. So you should really always look at them together. I see. So you can accept a higher PE when yields are, when rates are lower. Right. That's the output of a DCF. We run a constant DCF. But, but our bullish thesis requires rates to go lower, because right now our fair value is 3,800 on the S&P. Uh -oh. So if it doesn't go lower, we're in trouble. What does is, what is the interest rate environment mean for you, for your businesses right now? You know, not your investment outlook, but for the companies that you're running. Well, the, the companies, there are certain companies that have exposure to short rate, to floating rate, and that is a headwind for some companies. A lot of them swap it out or, or buy caps, but that's something that we're changing our models and reducing estimates for. And that's a problem. We I don't mean to call it your specific companies. I'm just saying follow, for yeah. no for business, you know, right. for for industry. Yeah, well, we follow, We have models on all the companies, and we follow a lot of companies, and they're all have headwinds, and that is a risk. But we don't think the Fed's. We think three more increases are pretty much in the bag. We don't think that's going to hurt the economy that much because long rates are likely to be going down because that's what's normal when the Fed's over tight, and most uh, consumers are exposed to long rates and not short rates. In the United States, Canada, they have more floating rate debt. I might be going some long-term debt coming up here soon, so I'll be. You're a consumer who's in very good shape, and actually, it looks like most U.S. consumers are in pretty good shape, even though savings rates have come down substantially. I was looking at this on the Bloomberg. Bank balances are still very high historically. 
Um, now we're starting to see that roll over and we're starting to see credit card uh, people start to leverage up a little bit, but not too much. What do you think about, Robert, the U.S. consumer? I think there's still some room left for the consumer. It will be mixed across goods and services. But what we've seen so far in terms of the early comments from banks, Jamie Dimon the other day, uh, looking at what happened with regard to airline reporting today, looking across consumer discretionary earnings, they've all been pretty good so far. It's very early days, but that indicates that the consumer has still got some runway in front of them. Job market remains very strong, also mixed a lot. There are a lot of jobs on offer, but there are certainly places like tech and finance where there have been some layoffs. So we think in aggregate, consumers still has some runway, but a lot of noise beneath the surface. By the way, I was talking with my financial, my personal financial advisor yesterday. Really? And I was like, financial advisor. I was like, dude, can we, I've got a a little bit of cash that's just in a savings account. I said, can I put this in some high interest rate, like hips? We were talking yesterday um, uh, uh, about the high income pass throughs, this ETF. And he said, listen, that's going to give you 10%, but we need, for you to meet your goals, you need to quadruple your wealth and then multiply that by 10. (laughs) So we need to get a lot more aggressive. Um, I had a lot of other people must be in that situation as well. But you're at advanced age, Matt. I'm not sure that's not where you are. (laughs) I mean, I'm almost 50. Uh, No, I should have been here 20 years ago. Uh, But nonetheless, I think a lot of other people are in that position where they can't necessarily, yes, you get some juicy yields. We hear um, people advising institutions saying, hey, yield to worse for IG is five and a half percent. That's great. But for me, it's not enough. What do you see out there in terms of opportunities for people that need to amp it up? I think it's all about time horizon, but I do think there are some interesting tailwinds developing in some portions of the equity market. So one of the themes that we've been looking to that's been kind of buried beneath the surface the last few years has been this re-onshoring theme. So it became very prominent in the early days of COVID with supply chain problems, sort of got brushed beneath the carpet, and it's back. If you look in the chemical industry, there's been big job gains. You look at these big announcements in terms of chip companies. We think there's some interesting opportunities there in terms of industrial and manufacturing. The second theme we're looking at is the migration of technology into business. That's something that's been unfolding a bit. We think it will accelerate with some of the decline in employment in the tech sector and those folks moving out into real industries. So we think there are some exciting things happening where wealth can compound over time. All right, we're still waiting to hear from President Biden. We have this live shot of the White House and uh, um, he's supposed to come on at 10. And here we are at uh, 10.33, still no sign of him. But when he comes, we'll bring you live uh, uh, comments. There he's had some comments on the economy and inflation uh, print today. Um, it, you know, the definition of insanity is continuing to do the same thing and expecting a different outcome. Right. I don't know why we expect President Biden to come out on time. And then we had a White House give us the two-minute warning like five minutes ago. But that happens all the time, <laughs> and he's constantly late. No offense to him. He's got a lot to do. He's a busy guy. He's very busy. Uh, but I'm just saying for us, as we're lining the show, as we're producing this, you know, as we're planning things, Eric— <laughs> we should note that President Biden is always like 30 to 40 minutes late, at least. And that's why Eric keeps us. He just says, keep going, keep going. I want to talk about REITs. Uh, Jay, I know you guys uh, have an uh, InfraCap REIT preferred ETF. Talk to us about the REIT space and just kind of, as we walk in. That's a REIT Manhattan, that leans on the energy sector, right? What's that? That's a REIT that leans on the energy mm-hmm. sector. What do you uh, have no, in that? No, wait, that's just a pure uh, preferred stock. It's a preferred okay. stock. Now, as I walk right. through Midtown Manhattan right. and I look at all these beautiful buildings, they're empty. What am I doing with REITs? What am I doing with real estate? Well, the exposure in, in that fund is pretty limited on office. Having okay. said that, um, surprisingly, a office, even in Manhattan, is going up or doing well. 
it's really the B offices they're getting smashed. This is so, an A office here I'm sitting in. Right, I'm definitely. Yeah, right but everything now. else on the Lexington Avenue corridor is B, is it? If not C or D. Right. So yeah. that's going to get redeveloped. But the good thing about REITs is that they're not very levered, and they have long-term leases. So by the time all those leases expire, there will have been movement out of the B space and conversions to probably residential. So <clears throat> they're under-levered credits that survive well during cycles. And that's really the investment bankers. You Rarely would I give them credit, but they didn't want you to sell. <laughs> it formerly was, yes, yes. <laughs> but a reformed. But <laughs> they re actually require, we, we made a pitch when I was an investment banker to one of our clients to be a read. And I said, oh, well, let's put 60% leverage on it. And they said, no, 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 this has to be full cycle because we're going to sell it to retail. So it was only 40% leverage. So surprisingly, they're, they're really good credits, even when they're pressured, like in cycles now. In terms of, uh, you know, I always think of the housing market here as driving uh, consumer wealth, and I was lucky enough to get in right at the top. Um, do, do we see that as a real problem, Bob? Because no, nobody seems that worried about it. We've seen a substantial drop in prices, and a, a bigger drop has been forecast by some uh, boys who cried wolf, I guess. Is it, is it not as bad as had been expected? I think there are a few influences. So one is that it, it, it is bad in terms of there's been a big slowdown in terms of activity, which will delete some economic growth and is one of the underlying cycles in the economy. So the slowdown in housing with rates where they are right now is something that, that really will be a headwind for the economy. I think in terms of uh, house pricing and wealth effect, uh, it's similar to the equity market. If you look at it in isolation over last year, it's a challenge and a problem. But when you look back over the past few years, uh, not so bad. So I think if you wait that out, you have some people who, who will certainly be underwater on prices, a little bit of declining wealth effect. But by and large, over a reasonable period of time, that's not been a big problem yet. So that's one of the reasons why it's important to get inflation under control, hopefully get mortgage rates under control, maybe back a little bit lower as we look ahead. You Bob, know what my problem is yep. that you three guys are all probably on the other side of? What? My guy, Rick, he said, listen, if you want to send your kids to like Ivy League schools or even just college in America, um, you still need like way more income. Oh, yeah. But he said, if you send them to school for free in, in Europe, my wife is from Spain, you're good to go now. Right. So just move back and like... 15 years. That's what I want to do. But my wife says we should give the kids the opportunity to go to some of these expensive U.S. schools because from her vantage point, the Europeans see this as an amazing experience, like a social chance that you never would have in a European lifetime. And huh? I feel like that's just I'm throwing away like a Rolls Royce Cullinan if I send one of my kids <laughs> to four years of college in America. It's an investment. It's not an expense. It's an investment. But it's just a party, right? <laughs> Am I wrong about that? No, you're not. Okay. I mean, you're not too that far removed. Um, Bob, what do I do with bonds? I, I had historic losses in bonds last year. And for an equity guy like me, when people tell me that they've never seen those kinds of losses, I'm like, I'm all in, baby. You know, both hands. Uh, buying bonds. What are you guys doing with the, in the fixed income market? I think bonds do look pretty compelling here. And what's exciting about it is that you don't have to stretch that far to get a decent yield. So in the past, there was this you know stretch for yield. People were willing to give up liquidity. They were willing to take on all sorts of extra credit risk. You don't really need to do that here. So the, the assumption, if you walk in, that, that you can generate 4 to 5% with relatively conservative fixed income, keep duration not that long, don't take a lot of credit risk, those are decent returns. And so for institutional portfolios, like endowments and foundations that are targeting 5% spend rates, that number is pretty close to that spend rate. It's a good investment. So we think there will be some good opportunities in fixed income, and you don't have to get too creative to pursue them. What, 
Will be? You don't think that there already have been? They are now. Sorry. Yeah. Will be good returns in fixed income. Okay. Yes. I mean, Jay, if you see rates coming down, I mean, did you jump in at four and a quarter? Well, what we jumped into was preferred stocks. So, in fact, that was our call like a week and a half ago. They but still it, do preferred stocks? <laughs> yes, preferred. <laughs> but um, they're up like almost 10, one of our funds is up almost 10% this year. And so, typically, they're volatile securities. They get sold way too much in the cycle because they have very low default rates. So if you're, they're definitely more volatile, but less volatile than stocks. So that's where we have been suggesting to step in. And so far we've been right this year. By the way, do you care that it took Kevin McCarthy like 15 votes to become the Speaker of the House? Do you care that we could see the debt ceiling come back as like an issue, certainly for the media, but possibly for markets as well? Does it matter to you as an investor? I mean, we think it's mildly positive because it's just indicative of gridlock. And we're not big, we don't think that the US economy is driven by government spending, particularly federal government spending. So we think it's somewhat bullish, even though the market might trade off if there's a debt ceiling. I was problem. hoping, Bob, he would say it's a concern because, <laughs> uh, because the, well, no, I wasn't hoping, but I was thinking that, you know, it's a problem if you can't pass a budget if the US government defaults, which seems like crazy, but I'm looking at Washington and they're crazy, you know? Is it a possibility? It, it's a possibility that will certainly create a lot of volatility as we get closer to that date, which is somewhere out in the you know August, September timeframe. We've seen this movie before, so we've been through yep. it. It's generated volatility before, uh, and we've gotten past it. So I'm in the same camp as, as Jay in terms of gridlock is good and, and on the policy stand front. You know what you're dealing with as a, as a company management team. But whenever you think about the debt ceiling and things like that, that does have the potential to create volatility and probably will. And we see it coming. Did hey, you see Did you see Levine yesterday, Matt Levine? Yes. On the debt ceiling? <laughs> His story starts out, the dumbest thing in economics, the U.S. government's debt ceiling. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, money stuff. Matt Levine's money stuff is must read every day. I have an alert set up for He's that. He's talking about premium bonds. He thinks they should issue premium bonds. I know. So like... Uh, a bond that yields like 16%, but instead of selling it for face value, they sell it to you for double that, right? Because the debt ceiling, apparently the law says it's all about the face value of the debt issue. They don't care about the interest expenses. And even I guess the premium would be okay for the treasury to pocket. Yeah, I mean, so good stuff. I always recommend reading his stuff. Laura Martin is a senior media analyst at Needham & Company. She's been on the street for decades covering the entire evolution of the media and the TMT space. Uh, she joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. We're so glad to see her. You're based in LA, but you're here in New York because you guys had a conference, right? We did. We had a big, the Needham, 25th annual Needham Growth Conference this week. I had 22 CEOs on stage, real time, talking about the end of the year, 2023 outlook, super interesting stuff. What were some of the key takeaways for you, for you? So for me, so mostly ad-driven firms, and as you know, advertising firms are down 50 to 70% uh, last year, yep. had a horrible year. Look, I think estimates are low enough. I think first quarter is going to be weak. I think fourth quarter, Paul, for the first time, you were a media analyst with me 20 yep. years ago when yep. we first we were at First Boston, <laughs> and for the first quarter, like, fourth quarter didn't show up. Some guys are going to report a lower fourth quarter than third quarter, Wow! but it's in the estimates, which you and I have never seen before yeah, yeah. as media people, but I think it's in the estimates. I think that we don't have more estimates revisions downwards so I think I'm hopeful for the second half of this year that um, stocks rebound 
towards the second half of this year with an outlook for earnings stabilization and upswing in, in the second half of next year. So you're not just looking at reports and, you know, reading notes. You actually talk to the CEOs of these companies at yep. the Needham uh, conference, conference in Vegas. Uh, you met with CEOs there. I did. What What are what is their sentiment like right now? Because I feel like Wall Street is getting a little bit more optimistic about 2023, a little bit less concerned about the Fed, less concerned about a big recession, and certainly less concerned about inflation. So I, so in, let me stay, stick to the ad-driven parts of the business. I think ad-driven CEOs foretell, for um, expect, and are managing their cost structure towards an ad recession. None of them will step up to the level you've just asked about, which is an economic recession, because they don't feel qualified to do that. But I think each of them feels there is an ad recession as advertisers hold back, waiting for consumer demand to show up before they spend ad trying to drive consumer demand. So Matt, there are a million analysts out there on Wall Street, and they all have their earnings estimates and price targets and things like that. Lars does that too, but she's different. She thinks like way out of the box. Um, and lots of big <laughs> themes. A lot of her stuff I have to read two or three times to figure out kind of what she's saying, but it's way out there. What are some of your... So I'm inarticulate. This it, is what I've just learned. <laughs> you're just, no, you're a big picture. You're a big picture person, which, by the way, I, so here's a question then um, on, a, on a bigger picture thought that I've had for some time. Paul hates it when people work from home. To him, that's the bane of his existence. And I feel like th this is the future because we're all going to live in the metaverse and be plugged in and never have to leave our little uh, pads. I feel like the, the one beneficiary of that should be the company that's named Meta. Oh, and boy, you been, raised a big topic They've here. been absolutely crushed as well. So why isn't that a long-term buy for you? She okay. has underperformed on I that. Know, I the see. only one. <laughs> Um, so, so Meta, we're particularly worried about, and we do have an underperform, which is rare on the street. I think there's 55 buys. Um, and I think what we're saying is, I, I think the question we are raising that we think investors need to think through is, is there actually a core business if TikTok isn't stopped? Yes. Can you rely on regulators to enter and ban TikTok? You can absolutely make a bet on that. However, if they aren't stopped, because in my opinion, TikTok has a real business and it will get bought by somebody rather than just go right. away. So if they have a real business, it is unclear to me what a social network is worth and whether it has any exit multiple if, if mm. TikTok keeps eating the world. But don't you separate that from their ambitions? I mean, social networks are a flash in the pan. We had Friendster. We had MySpace. <laughs> That's a Facebook topic. is pretty gross. I think we can all agree. Um, you've got Instagram and TikTok that are hot right now. But the important thing for me is the metaverse. Aren't they buying you know, and building this huge metaverse company? So let's go back to, I'm going to tie that into your CES question, because CES for the first time ever, and I didn't skip a CES. If it was on, I drove from LA to see it, had a metaverse section, first time ever. Really? Metaverse oh. included like the PlayStation. I don't know what you guys think. <laughs> I don't think the PlayStation, which is a hardware-based console game system, is the metaverse. The problem is there's four companies in it. There's four booths in the metaverse. Right. So I think the metaverse, first of all, no one defines it the same. What you think you're asking me a metaverse is probably not what I think metaverse is, Fair. nor is it Paul's. Fair. Everybody has a new definition of it. A lot of AI, and a lot of AI, I think, is the metaverse. Coming out of CES, I think what was really important for media, as media analysts, where Paul and I started in the world, is screens everywhere. Japan, you know, they haven't been replacing their population, so they're making these little robots that look like people. Their face has a screen because it's sad, it listens to you, it emotes. Guess what, there's gonna be an ad on that screen someday to lower the cost. Right now those robots are $3,000 a month. 
what, why doesn't Coke put a little Coke bottle on the bottom of every one of the screens in perpetuity and pay the company $10 million a year? What a great idea. There's screens on their belly so that you can push, you know, call emergency response or get me a Coke and the robot goes and gets you. There's screens on the belly. The point is in cars and in these new robotics, a lot of robotics on the floor of CES, they all have screens. And if they have a screen, an advertiser is going to figure out a way to subsidize the consumer payment for that physical yeah. asset forever. Because that's just smart marketing. Put a sure. you know, put a watermark on well, it. Well, it's already happening, right? The screen in my car says Google right on it all the time. It's got <laughs> yep. a Spotify button for me yep. to click. I don't even use and Spotify. They pay. Yeah, and I'm they sure. Pay for that I'm sure. Uh, I just you know, you're right about the metaverse. My definition is much broader than probably. I think the Zoom is already in the metaverse. You know, and by the way, they're when putting Fortnite Red in Redemption. the metaverse now. Fortnite Everybody's like, sense. Fortnite's a metaverse company. I'm like, okay, I think it's a mobile <laughs> game company, but okay. So, I don't know, the most interesting, I would say, look, my deliverable when I go to CES, because they're showing stuff three years from now, is does it raise a question for me that I've never thought of in my life? And that's pretty hard, a pretty high standard. Yeah. <laughs> it did. Because one of the things they're showing in, you might call it the metaverse, they're putting under AI, so artificial intelligence is, if you upload videos and letters and um, audio tapes, the AI will render your dead loved one and they have programmed the AI to answer the top 10,000 questions. So you can talk to your, your dead mother, your dead sister. I feel like there's a movie about relatives. that already. <laughs> in in re answering questions for you in their cadence, in their accent, in their person as an avatar. Like it raises the question, yep. just because technology can do something, should it should do it? Should it do something? I mean, All right, let's go question. back to something a little bit more on the earth, in, okay. in the earth. Nelson Peltz, is, Nelson Peltz has <laughs> taken a position in the Walt Disney Company. What's your Disney call right here? Bob Iger coming back, our old buddy. What's your Disney call here? So my Disney call is I think Bob Iger is best in class at managing people, both down and I think, um, and I think up. Yep. So I think that we're going to get a lot less drama at the Walt Disney Company, which I think is good for a content company. You know, Paul, they don't have a content. Their content revenue is in other Mm -hmm. under the under yep. Bob Chapik like how dismissive of what is the core business right. there that they build all of their other economic engines around so I think we get a refocus on content which I think is deserved um, and I think he sells okay. I think the Walt Disney Company has been very unsuccessful at succession planning right. and I think it's a hard job it's almost an impossible job because it's like running a government in terms of the right. brand stringency so I think Apple buys them. I think that is Whoa, a good home for really? them. I do. You think Apple but buys them? We've, well, we've been saying this for years that Apple and, should buy Disney. Yes, and he has said if Steve Jobs had not died, I would have, because he was on his board, right? Yep. He, I would have sold Disney to Apple. That is a good fit. The government will make sure Apple says you can't make your content exclusive. That's smart for 10 years, like they did with NBC. You can't make this content exclusive when Comcast bought NBC. So for you know 10 or 20 years, Apple won't be able to make Disney content exclusive. But at the end of the day, that is a good home. We've got a billion of the wealthiest consumers on wow. earth in the Apple ecosystem. And the brands are completely brand consistent. And I just don't think there's a person out there that can run the Walt Disney Company. It's yep. just too hard to well, job. Well, I thought we had I thought we had a, a perfect setup with Tom Staggs. And Me Dave too. Rusillo. I'm such a Tom Staggs fan. I, I know. And then he, I tell you, Bob Iger's got so many wonderful things on his resume. Just he does. nonstop. But a huge failure is the lack of succession. Yeah, his, that's a, his inability to by give the way, up power. I agree, and it hurts his legacy. Yes, because as a as a general manager, you need to have a bench and a succession plan. And and by the way, I blame the board more than I blame Bob. Bob's just a great yeah, execution guy. Right. But in fairness, like if you're the, you got to think about the next hundred years, not right. just like while you're in tenure. So I well, agree. he tried, right? 
Well, no, in Bob sense? wouldn't give up power. Simple as that. And then when he did give up power, he didn't really give up power. He kind of undermined Bob Jacob. All right, what's the one thing we're th not thinking about that you're thinking about for 2023? Um, streaming has ruined the economics of the media business. We're down to one window, right? If we don't have box office, we have a single window. When you and I covered media, it was seven windows. Right. You know what a good economic model is? Seven windows where you have ticket sales and you have video games, then you have streaming, then you have broadcast. Right. We need more windows back. Otherwise, the return on content spending is going to be negative as it is today. How do we, how do, we do that? Because when you and I you know, were covering these names, even 10 years ago, a network would spend a billion, two billion, three billion dollars on content. Now they're spending 12, 15, 17 billion dollars on content. Oh, by the way, and I don't know where the revenue stream is going. And I guess that's kind of the conundrum for these media companies. My costs have gone up, but I don't know where my revenue is coming from. Well, I'm going to answer that, but I also want to tell you, by the way, all these streamers don't have talent backends. So the talent's about to go on strike in Hollywood, where I live, because they don't, they're watching their traditional business go to zero, yep. and they don't have backends, meaning uh, they don't have an annuity yep. stream after they produce the content. So they're going to strike because there's sort of nothing to lose for them. So the content cost that we've been paying for streaming is actually cheaper than it's about to be because talent is going to want to have a back-end residual like they do in music right. and like they do right. in the film that business. That makes sense. So these costs are about to go up for streaming. So the answer is you have to have consolidation. The thing I am most excited about that everybody's missing, I think, is John Malone is back in the media business because he had to give up his super voting rights and right. discovery, and so now he's on the board. And Zaslov's, his, you know, that Zaslov team of execution and Malone's genius of how to make money in an ecosystem, I think, is one of the most. I expect economic rationality to come back. The to Darth the Vader of cable is coming back in streaming to make form. money. To make money, yeah. because we are not going to fund this anymore. We, Wall Street, have said you must make money, and streaming has been set up to not make money, and its costs are about to go up because talent wants a share. Let's talk about Apple a little bit more because you like I, Apple, I right? Do. And um, they are getting ready to grow into some pretty interesting places. They want to get into, what is it, augmented reality. I think they're putting out like a, some kind of glasses or headset this year. At least that's what Mark Gurman tells us. And in 2026, they're going to put out a car. Now, if they buy Walt Disney, they're in pretty much everything. What, what's, the, what's the future look like for Apple? So I think Apple has made, so as you know, when you do the work, the 20% of your customers or 80% of your revenue, that's what Apple specializes in. $1,200 devices, a billion unique users have an iPhone worldwide. That is the richest 15% of, and that is the people who have 80% of the economics in the world. Sad to say, but true. So anything that they do, they have $90 billion a year free cash flow, which means no industry is safe unless Apple just doesn't care. It's too small. They're going into cars. That is hard work. You know what's not hard work? Selling ads to the top 15% wealthiest consumers. They've got, my, my prediction is they will go into the ad business in a big way in 2023 and 2024. Really? They'll be Just very so. cautious. It is a $800 billion yep. a year business, and it is easy to get into. There's established technology partners, so they have to do it brand consistent because they protect their brand at all costs, but it is an $800 billion revenue stream that, that they have, can get partners, and they don't need a car. That doesn't have to take them three years. And it's a, it's 80% margins, as Paul and I know. Why haven't they gotten into the business, do you think? You know, I think they think it's not brand consistent. Okay. And again, like the Walt Disney Company that constantly asks, what would Walt Disney do? And is gated by that yep. decision. Apple says, what would Steve Jobs do? Well, he would never have done advertising. Right. So they really have to go very, I would say, plodding. But Amazon, they, Amazon they, has showed that you can get big quickly. 
it. You can't get thirty billion yeah. this year for yeah. Amazon. Advertising. And Apple's starting to break away because Steve Jobs would never have put a touchscreen in a laptop. That's and true. They're going to do that <laughs> they, now. But that's but they just are just more deliberate. When they're going against Steve Jobs, they are just much more deliberate. But I think it is a much better revenue stream at a higher margin, and they should be in the. Ad do business. you care that uh, I've learned this year that Paul is very angry that they don't pay a dividend? Do you yes. care? No, don't care. <laughs> Don't care. Sorry. Right. I know. I just yeah. I would love a nice saucy two to three percent dividend <laughs> yield. Uh, you think about all the Instead shareholders. Instead of buying you could shares. Yeah, you can do both. I got ninety billion dollars yeah. of free cash flows. Yeah. You mentioned. All right. Uh, since we got here, we're going yep. right down your list. Yep. Alphabet. I mean, yep. digital advertising. It was just on autopilot for more than a decade. It was. Not so much now. How do we think about Alphabet, but just kind of the digital advertising space? So I'll answer both questions. So what I think, Paul, is this, you know, the search engine has like 80% margins. And it's my opinion that even including YouTube, sort of the rest of their business is hobbies. Nothing else makes money. Search writes them a check. My view is that this, re this ad recession, which all my guys are calling for, is going to allow Ruth, who's the CFO that comes yep. from Morgan Stanley, yes. which is yep. a mature competitive business, it's going to allow her to cut costs. And it's about frickin' time. They yep. need to get rid of some of these hobbies. And, we, and, and either they need to get rid of hobbies or we need to take the share price down again because they're not being disciplined they're not running a business you know and yep. search is now under siege from this chat you know ai thing right and maybe bing takes inroads but the point is if that's about to undermine their core competence they should be scared to death and they should be cutting costs so i'm hoping that we get business discipline into alphabet for the first time because they're scared about an ad recession coupled with this ai threat and Ruth has probably wanted to cut costs for three years and just hasn't yep. been allowed to. Is it like, I mean, Amazon under Bezos was always like they could turn the tap and profits would flow out. They would do that occasionally when Wall Street wanted to take the stock price down. Um, what is it like under Jassy now? What do you think about Amazon? So I think, so Amazon, we are writing that you should invest in the Red Cross rather than Amazon because they have 500 billion of revenue and they have 500 billion of costs and they have a million employees and they're making no money. And I, I don't think that's a business. I think it's a hobby. So I call shenanigans. Under Jeff Bezos, okay. Like every time he spent, lost a billion dollars, he would, it would turn into the cloud or it would turn into the ad business. But I don't think you get to just transfer that goodwill from Wall Street to Andy Jaffe, who's a different human being. I don't know what decisions he's making in the five billion a quarter that he's spending that don't make money. And Wall Street's changed its mind this year, as you, in yep. 2022. We want free cash flow. And when you're a public company, sorry, Wall Street gets to change its mind on a dime, even though you think you're running a business for multi-years. We have changed our mind. We want free cash flow now. So Jaffe either needs to, either business needs to go back to Bezos, and then maybe he'll get a pass to not make money. If it's Jaffe in the seat, he needs to make money, like yesterday. So he's got a million employees. He's not laying off fast enough. He's got to cut costs faster in order to get the share price up, in my opinion. There you go. Boom. Clear. I mean... You walk out of a meeting with Laura Martin, you know exactly where she stands. So that was good stuff. Laura Martin, she's a senior media analyst at Needham & Company, uh, based in L.A. here in New York because they had their big uh, Needham & Company uh, growth stock uh, kind of conference in New York. 25th annual? 25th annual. All right, good stuff. Awesome. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. 
our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Let's bring in Sam Burns right now. He's founder and chief strategist at Mill Street Research to talk about, uh, well, this number, Sam, and, you know, the Fed, what are they going to do? How do you take the inflation? Um, are we getting back to a good place, and can the Fed kind of slow down? Hi, thanks for having me on. And yes, I think uh, the inflation numbers have definitely gotten a lot better over the last, say, six months or so. Uh, you know, you look at the six-month annualized uh, rate of change of the CPI, and we're, we're basically uh, just below 2% now. Uh, so we're back to where the Fed wants to see it uh, during the period that, that really captures when they've been raising rates and after the, uh, you know, the, the commodity spike uh, caused by Russia has kind of petered out. So I think we're in a much better place inflation-wise. I think the Fed's main concern now is the labor market. Even there, we're starting to see you know, some signs that uh, it's slowing enough to, to ward them off. So uh, certainly seeing uh, the uh, Philadelphia Fed president, uh, Harker, out today saying that he's in favor of uh, shifting down to 25 basis point rate hikes uh, is a sign that they're taking that into account and probably will slow down uh, pretty quickly here. So we see inflation coming down here, Sam, certainly. But uh, how about wages here? I mean, wage growth has been strong, but certainly below that of inflation. How do you think about that dynamic? That's right. And, uh, you know, workers have not seen their wages keep up with inflation so far. Um, but it does show that, show that, you know, wages themselves are slowing. And I think that's really what the Fed is focused on. And certainly the, the total wage uh, income in terms of the number of people working, the amount that they're earning per hour and the number of hours they're working, that's been slowing as well. It's not quite to where they want to see it, but that's coming down closer to levels of the last few months that would be consistent with, you know, with low inflation. So I think that's the key metric, um, you know, taking everything into account, uh, how much people are working, how many, and what they're earning. Uh, and that's coming back closer to, to where they want to see it. Um, so I think it's... Uh, you know, one of those things where it's, you know, bad news is good news still uh, for the markets and for the Fed. They want to see things slow down, which is less good for the workers uh, who are earning that money, but uh, better from the standpoint of not having to raise rates so much. So uh, do we take the Fed at their word, though, that they're going to, you know, they've been so hawkish. Now, the last couple of days we've heard, I think, at least three Fed speakers come out and say 25 basis points instead of 50, which I could I feel like is a little bit dovish. Nonetheless, they all say, you know, Raphael Bostic said, we're going to hold rates high for a long time. And the market just doesn't seem to believe them. Why? 
No, that's right. The market definitely does not uh, see uh, the rate staying high above 5% for a long time. Uh, certainly the, the way the Treasury yield curve and everything else is positioned now suggests that they're expecting uh, rates to not only probably not get quite that high, but also to come down you know, fairly soon, meaning potentially even by the end of this year, if not early next year. Um, and so I think you know, looking at where the inflation data is, where the wage growth is, a lot of what the surveys are showing, ISM and things like that, I think the, the bond market is – going to assume that the Fed responds to economic data uh, going forward more like they used to, meaning that signs of slowing in the economy will produce fewer rate hikes and, and then potentially rate cuts, uh, and that, that seeing things uh, you know, slow down fairly rapidly over the course of this year uh, will you know, provoke uh, rate cuts to bring the rates back down. And see, even, even the Fed thinks that 2.5% is the long-run you know, kind of target uh, over the next, you know, say, five years, and so that 45 or 5 would still be very tight relative to that long-run target. And so there's still room to, say, bring it down um, from 4.5 or 5 to 4 and still be considered tight, even if it's uh, you know, moving in the direction of cuts. Sam, how do you feel about uh, non-U.S. stocks? We had Tim Craighead, who runs uh, research for Bloomberg Intelligence uh, in Europe, and he was coming on, and then he's a strategist over there, saying that Europe's done better, and he expects it, it may continue to do better. How do you feel about non-U.S. stocks? Yeah, so in, in my work, uh, the last few months, I've been uh, much more in favor of non-U.S. stocks than U.S. stocks, and uh, particularly in Europe. And a lot of that is driven by what I see in the um, analyst activity. Earnings estimate for revisions um, have been holding up much better in Europe than they have in the U.S., uh, particularly compared to the large-cap you know, growth stocks here. And so I think uh, Europe's – the fact that Europe does not have the big tech-heavy names that we have is finally now <laughs> working in their favor – and, uh, and that they may avoid a recession this year thanks to the uh, milder winter and the you know, preparations they've made to uh, deal with the energy crisis there. So I don't think things are going to be fantastic in Europe, but they'll be potentially better than expected. The uh, sentiment toward Europe uh, in terms of the economy was really, really negative for much of last year, particularly towards the end of the year. And I think you know, as that sort of you know, uh, gets mitigated, things look a little less bad than the stocks can outperform on a relative basis versus the U.S. By the way, I, I, looking down your resume, you're an equities guy, but what do you think about these yields we're seeing in fixed income? Is it worth taking a bite? Uh, I've been underweight uh, bonds in my asset allocation work uh, because the, the, the you know, bond yields right now don't look particularly attractive. They've already priced in a fair amount of what the Fed is likely to do in terms of cutting rates, and you know, rates may still be going up in, in Europe as well. Um, so my guess would be that you know, the short end cash is probably better than you know, the longer-term uh, bonds right now, uh, but I still like, uh, I like equities better than, than both uh, than anywhere in fixed income at the moment. All right, Sam, great stuff. Appreciate getting uh, your thoughts today. Sam Burns, founder and chief strategist at Mill Street Research, located in Sherbourne, Mass. I'm not sure where that is, but I'm just going to guess it's somewhere greater Boston, but I'll look on the Google Maps later. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. 
title sponsor, Amazon, official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.